Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and again turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, and we are in chapter 4 as we continue our march through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Our text this morning will be verses 15 to 18, and I have to say that I'm regretting that I took such a large chunk this morning, but we will try to make our way through that text this morning. But we will start reading this morning from verse 13. We just want to take the context in as we come to our passage this morning. Paul writes as he is again moved by the Holy Spirit, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Join with me in prayer this morning before we tackle this text. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you've given it to us that we might understand what is going to take place in the future. And we thank you that we do not have to guess, that we don't have to try to figure it out on our own, but you have laid it out clearly for us. And so this morning, I pray again that we would take the hope that we have of your return and that we would comfort one another with that. And so I pray this morning that you will be pleased in the worship of your people and that as we hear your voice through the word of God here this morning, I pray in your name. Amen. Well, we've been going through the book of Thessalonians and we said that in the, this book here, after, after chapter 3, verse 10, he is trying to fill in what is lacking in their faith. Now, he's not saying that they're, they're somehow defunct in believing in Christ for salvation, but he is simply saying there is some maturing for you to do. There's some maturing for you to do. In other words, there's some sanctification that needs to be done. And there's also some information that you don't have that you need to live the Christian life. And so I want to do two things. I want to inform you, and then I want to call you to respond to that teaching. And so Paul has been starting to fill in those areas where they are weak and they need to grow spiritually. So he talked to them about the area of of sexual purity and how they need to walk in a way pleasing to God in that area. He talked about their need for brotherly love, that they needed to continue to grow in it. And then as he came to this section in verse 13, he starts in a new area where they are lacking in knowledge, lacking in, in their faith, and lacking in their practice, and he wants to fill that in for them. 
And that area is in the area of what happens to brothers and sisters in Christ after they die. The Thessalonians here have, are, are in grief. It says they are grieving. He doesn't want them to grieve as, as the unbelievers would because there are brothers and sisters who have passed away. They are living in that expectation of Christ's return. We saw that back in in chapter 1, verse 10. To wait for his son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And so they are looking, there's this expectant hope for the return of Jesus Christ. And in that expected return of Jesus Christ, they expect to be, it says here, to rescue us from the wrath to come. But also there was the idea that they thought that when Christ was going to come back, that he would come back in their lifetime, that he would come and that there was privileges that would be given to people when Christ returned. And so their concern was, listen, when Christ returns, like we've been told, and we believe that he's coming back, What's going to happen to the unbeliever? I mean, to the believers who have died? Because there are certain events and certain things that are to take place when Christ comes, and we don't want them to miss it. And so there was maybe a belief in their mind that somehow that those who had died in Christ were not going to miss the return of Christ, and they were, going to rem- they were going to miss the events that took place and the blessings that took place. And maybe, sure, they were spiritually alive, but maybe their bodies wouldn't be resurrected. Because after all, their, their bodies were in the ground and decaying, and what would happen there? And so Paul writes in this section to give them comfort. And this is, this is the primary thing that he is writing this section for. Now, in writing this section, he gives us some theology that we need to know and some doctrine, and he gives us a picture of events to come. But if we were to only take this and say, here's events to come, here in my time chart, this is where it goes, we have really, we're missing what he's saying here. Now, I'm not saying that we can't draw some conclusions from that, but what I am saying is we don't want to lose our, uh, get lost in the chronology and all of those other things and forget why Paul is giving this to us. And so, yes, we will touch on chronology, but I don't want you leaving here and that's the only thing you remember. In other words, he's giving this primarily for comfort. And so we don't want to lose that. So last week, we we really saw the importance of doctrine as we began through this section. He says, but I do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who have fallen asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. In other words, there is a hole in your understanding. There's a hole in your doctrine that needs to be filled. And you need it to be filled so that you don't grieve like the unbelievers who have no hope. And he says, there is a certain part of doctrine that you need to know. There's information that you need to know that will inform how you live. And and that information will ultimately be beneficial to you. He says, for if we believe, here's what the doctrine you need to believe. And this is what will be transformational for you. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we said that was not, was the idea of, 
of you think about it. Yes, I do believe. I actually believe these things. I believe that Jesus died and rose again. He's the one who was the firstborn of the res- of of the dead. He's now been raised physically. He is now seated at the right hand of, of God. I believe that. S- Here's what you should believe then, the end result of believing that, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. He's going to bring those who have fallen asleep with him. They're not totally lost. They're not going to wander eternity in a different way. Christ is bringing them with them. And now Paul is going to continue on and he's going to say, here's how I know. I'm, going to, I'm actually going to give you the nuts and bolts of that statement. In other words, I'm going to explain it to you. I've told you it's going to happen. But maybe at this point, you might, the Thessalonians might be saying, well, how do you know that, Paul? And how is it going to happen, Paul? And Paul says, I'm going to answer those questions for you. And so as he comes to this text, he's first of all going to, he's going to give us the source of the doctrine that he's giving. He's going to say, here's the authority by which this doctrine comes. And then he's going to give the content of that doctrine. In other words, I'm going to explain the event step by step, what's going to take place so that you know you don't have to worry about the dead in Christ. And then he's going to really apply that doctrine to them. He's going to say, here's the application to you. This is what you need to do with it. And this is really where Paul is ultimately ending up with all of this information that he gives us. He's going to give that application at the end. Comfort one another with these things. So first of all, as we go to our text this morning, then Paul, after saying, hey, you guys need doctrine. You need, to, you need to fill in what you need to know. And doctrine is a solution to your problem. Information is what you need about those who have fallen asleep. He now begins, as we would say, to give us the details. He says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. And so he says, what I'm about to tell you I'm going, is, is the basis for what I just said in verse 14. In other words, I told you that if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And here's the explanation. Here's the basis of the assurance I gave you in, in verse 14. This we say, in other words, what I'm about to tell you and, and this is the, the basis of that insurance, comes to you by the word of the Lord. It's coming to you. It's, it's revealed truth that is spoken to the Thessalonians. In their, it's in their spiritual interests. And he says, it's coming to you by the word of the Lord. So he says, what I'm telling you isn't my own idea. I didn't make this up. Paul didn't just sit down and say, hey, they seem sad. What, what do I need to tell them? Th- I think this will work. No, he says, it's by the word of God. The, the source of the revelation, the source of what I'm about to tell you is a communication from the mouth of the Lord. It's m- made in connection with that. And so Paul says, this is actually the words of the Lord. And again, the word Lord in scripture is used for Jesus Christ. It is always used for Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He has authority. 
And again, I would suggest to you that he's using this word because he's about to give you information that is, comes with authority, and he wants you to recognize that of Jesus Christ's authority. Now, this has been variously understood by the word of the Lord. Well, when did Jesus say this? When did he actually say this? Well, some, some suppose to find the, this word in some recorded utterance of Christ. And so they go through scripture, they go through the, the gospels, and they try to find something that correlates with this, and they try to figure out if, where Christ said this. Well, the problem with that, there's nothing that's really recorded in scripture where Jesus says this. Some say, well, Paul is quoting some unrecorded saying of Jesus known to him through tradition. In other words, some, some thing that's been passed down verbally, and so Paul is just reciting this tradition. Well, the problem with that is uh, when, Christ, when, when Christ is actually quoted in the New Testament, it, like he was in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, it's made very clear that he's quoting Christ. He says in Acts 20, verse 35, and remember the words of what the Lord Jesus, and then he says this, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So now there's, there's a clear, this is what he said, here's the quote. Okay, now there's no quotes actually in the Greek, but, I, but, but we, we do know that this is what he is stating. And so, if, if he is quoting tradition, he certainly would not making it clear in any manner when he does, in a, when it's made clear in other places. He would have made it, he would have given an utterance more clearly. So more probably, this is the reference to a direct revelation that was given to a New Testament prophet, and I would see that New Testament prophet being Paul himself. That, God, that Jesus Christ has revealed to him this information. 1 Corinthians 12, 1-4, Paul speaks in, that, in the idea of him receiving information from the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by mute isles, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. Of course, I'm in, supposed to be in 2 Corinthians. Sorry. <laughs> but that was scripture. All scripture is profitable, right? Uh, Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows such a man was caught up into the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak." And so Paul, Paul indicates, and he does this when he gives the Lord's Supper, that he was taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. Some things he could say, some things he couldn't. And so this is probably Paul getting revelation directly from the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, first of all, 
Here's the authority with which this doctrine and with this teaching is coming. It is coming from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And if the Lord Jesus spoke it, then it needs to be listened to. And so Paul says, this isn't some man-made idea to comfort you. This is divinely given by the Lord, revealed by the Lord Jesus Christ for your good. Excuse me. And then Paul continues on in our passage. And again, he will give us the content of this doctrine that he's about to give. He's going to give us the details of that doctrine. He says in verse, as we continue in verse 15, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he said in verse 14 that God will bring with him those who are fallen asleep. Jesus will. He is the means by which they are brought to God. But he says here that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who fall asleep. And so he says, we who are alive. Now Paul includes himself in this group. Why does he do that? Well, he doesn't do it to say, well, the, the Lord Jesus Christ will come in my lifetime and we, which means me, means Christ is obligated to come before I die. Paul believed in a thing called eminency, which means Jesus Christ could return at any time after his ascension to heaven. There is nothing prophetically that is left that needs to be fulfilled for the Lord Jesus Christ to come back. He could come at any time. So whoever tells you, oh, Christ can come now because this event has taken place, is not biblically telling you what's true. Christ could have come at any time and there was an expectancy that he could come at any time. And so Paul is therefore pushing this idea. He wants them to recognize that Paul was hoping for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life, but he was in no way saying that he must come. And so Paul says, we who are alive. In other words, his point is, whoever is alive at the time when Christ returns, they will be alive in their physical bodies. And he says, and remains. The idea here is is to survive. Those who are still on earth in their physical bodies. Okay? So he's, he's saying... Those, we who are alive and who have survived to the time of his coming, until he comes, until that point in time, he says, those who are alive at his coming of the Lord. In other words, we who are on earth when Christ return will not, those of us in our physical bodies who are physically alive, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, he says, there, there is no... You Corinthians, even though they were in Thessalonians, are, yeah, they, he, I don't know. I don't know how the Corinthians keep getting here just because Paul's writing from there. But, but the idea here is this. We will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And, and the idea is, there's a double negative here. Like, by no means. In other words, the, the possibility is completely gone. You, it, there is absolutely no chance that those who are alive and well will precede those who have fallen asleep. 
It offers the soaring Thessalonians unquestionable assurance that the living will not precede them that have fallen asleep. They will not come before them. They will not get ahead of the, a head start on those who have died. The living will have no advantage over those fallen asleep at Christ's return. They will not get there to Christ before, before the unbo- those who have fallen asleep. They won't, there will be no blessing that's given to those who are alive more than to those who are asleep. And so the loss that they felt is an imaginary one. The, the, there's no advantage to being alive when Christ comes. You don't get special blessings. You don't get bonus points for making it to the end. Okay? There's no bonus, bonus points. You simply will not precede those who have gone, who have fallen asleep. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. So he, he goes on, and, and we could really say, because the Lord himself will descend. And he says, this is how I know that we won't precede those who have fallen asleep. Because the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Je- and now we'll notice again, Jesus himself will come. The Lord again speaks of Jesus Christ and he says the Lord himself will descend. Again, this is a very personal return. This is emphatically personal, we would say. The the, the pointing here points to the personal presence of the Lord himself. He's not merely going to send out angelic deputies to do to call his saints to himself. He's not going to send anybody else to do this job, but he will turn, return physically, presently in his glorified body to come for his saints. It is the Lord Jesus under whom the Lordship, the believers stand in life and death, will himself descend from heaven. So this is the, a bodily glorified Jesus Christ who will descend out of heaven. And again, he will descend from heaven. He will come down where he is, sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father. Romans 8 tells us Christ Jesus who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is what? At the right hand of the Father. Psalm 110 tells us the same thing. Come sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool. Jesus Christ at ascension has gone and sat at the right hand of the Father. And now he will rise from his seat and he will leave the Father's throne to descend to come down from heaven. And again, we we would say in verse 10, the believers are, are, are looking from Jesus from heaven or out of heaven from our point of view, him coming down, here's a view from heaven. He is, he is going from heaven, and from heaven's view, we see him leaving. And so the, really, the first, the first step in Christ's return is the fact that he himself will descend. And then that descension and, and maybe the next steps in his return are now described by three prepositional phrases describing the accompanying circumstances at the Lord's descent. In other words, there's three phrases here that will describe how he will return. 
how he will descend, what will take place as he descends. These are the circumstances of his return. It says he will descend with a shout. The first accompanying circumstances around Christ's return is this is this, is him shouting. Now it's it's interesting because this word shout here, we kind of get the idea of just yelling loudly, don't we? With a shout. Um the idea is kind of like the idea of, you know, someone just yelling loudly. I'm coming. But the idea of this word shout here is, is the idea of shouting a command. Shouting a command. It's, it's used in various different ways. It's used of a military, it has a military ring like a commander to his troops. When he yells, he's yelling an order and it's an order that has authority and, the, and needs to be obeyed. And when Christ comes, he will come with a shout. The Lord will command them to come. It was similar to the rising of, of Lazarus when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And when Christ returns, he will cry out and he will command the dead to rise. And the dead saints in the re- and the, with the resurrect bodies will be resurrected and brought up. This is what Jesus talked about in John 5.25. This is the hour when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Those who hear will live. Again, Jesus continued, as he continues on in John chapter 8, says this. John chapter 5, I'm sorry. John chapter 5 where he says this, Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son Son also to have life in himself. And he has given authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of God. And then he, so he says, "I, I have the ability, what? The dead will hear my voice. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds, to a resurrection of life. And here's the resurrection of life. And he says, they will hear the voice of of Jesus Christ, and the dead will be awakened as he calls them to life. So the righteous dead of the church will be the first ones to rise. They will come first as, they, as Christ calls. And then he says, not only will, they, will Christ come with a shout, but he also says with the voice of the archangel. Now we do not have, know a lot about angels. We don't have a lot of, a lot of 
information about who about their hierarchies. We hear we hear about principalities and powers, rulers of darkness when we speak of of demons. We don't know a lot about the angels that are in heaven. There, there seems to be a hierarchy. And here, there, there's speaking here of the archangel. In the Greek, there's no article. It's just an archangel. The only archangel that we know about in, is in Jude 9 that speaks of, of Michael, the archangel. So whether this is him or another archangel, we don't know. Uh, scripture does not say whether he is the only archangel. Jewish tradition says there's seven archangels, but then that's Jewish tradition, so, so we put no weight in it. Thus, it is impossible to say who the archangel is and, and whose voice will be heard. However, he adds his voice to the Lord's shout and command at the time of this resurrection. And then he says... And then he says this, and with the trumpet of God, we could say this is the fourth thing that takes place. The Lord's commands, the angel, the voice of the archangel will be added to something else, the trumpet of God. Now, this is not to be confused with the trumpets in Revelation chapter verses 8 to 11 that are speaking of judgment. But the idea here is this. The, the, the trumpet is used for many uh, reasons in Scripture. They sounded out at Israel's feast in Numbers 10. They shall be a reminder of you before God. I am the Lord your God. At convocations, the sound of the alarm at time of war. For any reason necessary to gather a crowd, to make an announcement, First Samuel 13.3. But it seems here that what he is doing here is simply he is assembling the people of God. He is calling them together as illustrated by Exodus 19, which called the people out of the camp to meet God. It is a trumpet of deliverance as Zechariah 1.16. He signaled deliverance to them. And so the idea seems to be that God is sounding the trumpet, as it were, to call his people together as well, to add that to that, because he is delivering them out of the grave and out of the world. And then the next thing that takes place is simply this. And the dead in Christ will what? Rise first. So Christ descends there's the, there's the shout, the ar- voice of the archangel. There's the trump of God. And then the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. Again, those who, who have fallen asleep in Jesus, according to verse 14. It limits the scope of the dead who will rise to the dead in Christ. It is those who experience physical death in Christ. Okay, so it is those who have died physically. The word dead can literally translated corpses. Okay, so just in case we think it's, it, it, it can be nothing else but a physical resurrection. The corpses in Christ will rise first. Those who are in the grave, those who have laid down, those who have temporarily laid down as if to sleep. 
And they are those who are in Christ, those who are in intimate fellowship with him, those who are in the sphere of salvation in him. Members of the body of Christ. And so he says, those who are dead in Christ. In other words, those who died in Christ. And we know who are those who died in Christ, but believers, New Testament believers who are in the church. And he says their bodies will be taken first. And again, first here is not to distinguish, uh, is to distinguish in time, not priority. they They are taken first in time. They will be caught up before those who are living the survivors will have to wait a moment, as it were. The dead saints are, we would say, at the head of the, head of the plane. That that's, means a lot to me because I just finished flying, right? And you, if you're sitting where I'm sitting, you're sitting very close to the back, right? So it's not, it's not as if this is a completely separate event where, where there's a huge time gap. But simply, uh, those in the front of the plane goes first and then the next section goes, okay? So it's, it, there's not a, a time gap here. Thus the dead and s- saints who died will not be at a disadvantage when the Lord returns at the perusia, at the gathering of the believers. They will not miss out on the rapture, the gathering of believers. They will not miss out on God's next events in his eschatological timetable. They will not miss out on the marriage of the Lamb. Far from being excluded from the Perusia, they will be main participants in the first act of the Lord's return. So they're not going to be left out. And again, this word of comfort must have brought relief to the Thessalonians, and it's certainly done so to innumerable Christians since then, because they are no longer, we no longer grieve as if they have lost something because Christ has not returned yet. He continues on here in Thessalonians and he says, the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds then we who are alive and remain, and again, speaking of those who survive to the time, who are alive at the time of Christ's return, those believers who are there, uh, then, marks again the order of events, then we who are alive, after those ones who are dead in Christ, Christ has descended, the, the dead in Christ have gone up, then, he says, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him. And again, we would recognize this is similar to 1 Corinthians 15, 51. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we will be changed, we will be taken up. And this is speaking of that same event, that transforming of the living in saints is implied into their resurrected bodies. So those who have been asleep in Christ have their bodies raised and given a new body. And so there's just a small gap between those who have slept in Christ and those who are alive. And it says they will be caught up, caught up together with them. 
This verb is a very strong verb. It speaks of a sudden, forceful grabbing or an irresistible act of catching away and due to a divine activity. It might be rendered sweep up, carry off by force. The Latin word for this Greek word is rapturo, from which we get our English word rapture. Now just so you know, this is not the only word in scripture that the only word that we use, we use the word rapture. We also use the word justification, which is not in scripture. It is again coming off a, a Latin word. So let's, let's, not, let's not say, well, the rapture is not in scripture, but the concept is. And so we want to make sure that we recognize that, that the concept is here. This word is used when Paul was caught up into the third heaven. This word is used of the spirit of the Lord that snatched Philip away, and Philip find, found himself, what, in another place. In other words, he was there, he was just taken and transported away. It's, it's the idea of a wolf snatching away sheep, a child caught up to God. And so this idea is this, this is a, a forceful gathering together, a, a, a rapture of, of taking those who are on earth and removing them forcefully. Now, there are some who have said, well, this word is used in a technical sense in, in secular literature to mean people who go out to meet a king. They go out to meet a dignitary and they bring them back. And they bring them back to the city from which they came. And so they say what's taking place here is Christ descends into the clouds the dead in Christ will rise, those who are alive in Christ will rise, and then they all come back down to earth. But I would suggest to you that the fact is, is that did these people go to meet Christ joyously to bring him back? They were not. They were raptured. They were forcefully taken. And so I would suggest that this word is not used in its technical sense in Scripture, nor is it used it in that way here. And so I would understand that the direction that takes place here, though it's not explicitly stated in this passage, is that they are taken from earth to Christ, who now takes them to the presence of God in heaven. That is consistent. Many theologians will turn to John 14, and they will, it's consistent with John 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in the Lord, believe in me also. In my Father's house are many dwellings, places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In other words, I'm coming to take you to, to be with me in my Father's house. I'm going to the presence of God. But I don't think we need to go that far. I don't think we need to travel over to John. I think we can actually just stay in Thessalonians. Remember Paul's prayer in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. As he prays for what's lacking in their faith, he says this, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you 
And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your heart without blame in holiness before our God and Father, when? At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In other words, Jesus descends, takes all of his saints, and is going to the presence of the Father. And I think that is, is, is the direction what is taking place here in this passage. He is taking his bride, the church. He is rapturing them. He is taking them and moving them to heaven. Now, no matter what your eschatological view, you have to, you have to agree that Jesus is going to descend. The dead will rise first. Those who are alive will what? Meet them together in the clouds. There's no disputing that. And so we, I always say everyone believes in the rapture, but not everybody agrees on the timing of the rapture. Good. Our, our main point here, again, is going to be what? Comfort. Comfort. But we do know this. He says they will be together in the clouds. They will be caught up together, what? In the clouds. Now, there is no explicit statement in Scripture that tells you when these events take place. So we want to make sure that we, we recognize that Paul's point here is not chronology. Now, I would understand this, having said this, I would understand this from the rest of Scripture to be pointing to a pre-tribulational rapture where the Lord Jesus Christ will return for his church before the seven-year tribulation and removing them from the wrath to come, which Paul prayed about, spoke of earlier in chapter 1. He will re rescues us from what? The wrath to come. I'll give you several reasons, and, and I, 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 I hesitated to do this, and yet I think I need to do this because this passage is often dismissed. And I don't want us to get bogged down on this. First of all, we would recognize that as we put Scripture together, the church is never mentioned in Revelation chapter 6 to 18, speaking of the tribulation to come, but is mentioned many, many times in Revelation 1 to 3. He used, it's used frequently but never in Revelation 6 to 18 as it describes the event of the, of the tribulation. Secondly, in Revelation 19, it does not mention the, a rapture at the return of Christ in, 19, in chapter 19, when if you believed in a post-tribulational rapture, you think this would be the point that you would insert it because that's when it would be taking place. This event would be taking place. Christ would descend, he would take those who are alive and dead in him and return to, to the earth. I would say this, and, 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 I, and again, we, I, I would say this is not a strong argument, okay? A post-tribulational rap, post rapture renders the rapture concept itself inconsequential. In other words, what's the point? You go up, you go down, right? You go up, you come down, you rule with Christ. 
pre-tribulational rapture, on the other hand, rescues you from the wrath to come and gives you hope. And so there's, there's a greater hope there. I would say this, the New Testament does not warn of an uh, impending tribulation. In other words, there is no instructions to the church to prepare themselves for the what? The day of the Lord. In fact, if we go to the next chapter, he says, you're you're not of the night that they should, uh, you're not of the night, or, or you're of the day so that the night will not overcome you. In other words, there's an expectation there that you will miss the wrath to come, that the that, there, that you will not go through those events. And so you would think at this point, if Paul, if Paul is in some way comforting them because those who were, who were in Christ had already died, you think they would be happy because they would be being avoiding all of the wrath to come. I would say that as we look at the events surrounding Christ's coming for the church and his second coming, there are completely different circumstances that go about that. Eighth, Jesus' teachings demands a a pre-tribulational rapture as as he spoke of these events. And then Revelation chapter 3 verse 10 teaches that the Lord will remove his church prior to the the tribulation. He says, I will also keep you from the wrath to come. I will keep you out of it is the idea. And so I would believe that this is speaking of a pre-tribulational rapture and gives us even greater hope. But no matter when it takes place, it does take place. And so we look forward to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now it says he will, he says as he comes down and he says this, he will descend with a shout with the voice of Archangel. Verse 17, they will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now some, some theologians have tried to explain this away and said this is, this is just symbolic, etc. But there's no reason for us not to take it literally. If Christ is coming and if he's raising, why would we take this any different? He says, we will meet them in the clouds, literally amid the clouds. In other words, we will be enveloped in the clouds. And the clouds are often associated in scripture with divine appearances. We see that in Exodus chapter 24, the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. Clouds mark God's presence in the tabernacle, in the temple, Christ's transfiguration. And at his ascent, Christ was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight, Acts chapter 1-9. If And Christ said, as you see the Son of Man go, he will return. Again, we would have to say this. 
There's no reason not to believe that if Christ went up on a real cloud, that he would not come back in real clouds. In the air, again, is the idea between heaven and earth. Air clearly is, is indicated. The atmosphere that surrounds the earth. In five of the seven instances in scriptures, it is absolutely clear that it's speaking of the atm- atmosphere. And again, we have no need here to make it any different. And I w- I'll call this a disputed passage, even though I don't think it's disputed. That this is air. And so Paul says... Guess what's going to take place? Christ is going to descend. The dead in Christ will rise. Then we which are alive and remain will be together in the clouds. We will meet in that space above the earth and we will be together. There will be a reunion. We, the dead in Christ, those who are alive, will be together there will be a meeting here. Uh, the, the, the word meeting has the idea of coming from two different directions and we will meet together and we will be together. We will meet and we will be with one another. And so the joy of reunion will be there because we have lost th- those in Christ. We will be reunited with them and there's a hope there. There's the hope that we will see them. But we don't want to lose sight of the greatest news here is that's not seeing your loved ones. I know some of you are offended. But he's, it, the idea here is we're going to meet what? The Lord. The Lord. And our hope is what? To meet the Lord. This, this, is, this is the cherry on top. This is the greatest thing that we can we can desire because now we will see him face to face. Now we will be in the actual physical presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. No more will we talk about mystically being in him, but we will be physically present with him. And so he says, we will be gathered together. All the saints who are in the church will be gathered together, raised in their glorified bodies, to meet the Lord, we will be with him. And, so, and then he says, and so shall we always be with the Lord. In other words, we, this is, again, he says, we will be with him. We shall always, there will never be a time where we will not be with him. Okay, so the emphasis isn't, isn't where we meet him in the air as if that's the permanent place. But the, the permanent thing that is here is the fact that we will always never not be with the Lord. We will always be with him. And we will, again, be in his physical presence. We will be in communion with him. This is not a temporary outcome. It is a satisfying outcome because we will always be with the Lord. So Paul says, this is what's going to take place in the future. This is what your hope is. I told you in verse 14, I I said to you, listen, God, God will bring with him those who are fallen asleep. And he says, this is how it's going to happen. 
This are the stages that are going to happen. And I give this to you on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave me these words. These are his teachings. And he says that we who are alive and remain will not precede those who are falling asleep. For the Lord will what? Descend from heaven. He will come with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, the dead in Christ. Then we will alive, alive and remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. This is what will take place when Christ returns. So will we always be with the Lord. So Paul gives us the authority of this doctrine. He gives us the details of this doctrine. And then he gives us the application of this doctrine. And again, doctrine is immensely practical. It is immensely practical because what you believe and what you understand affects how you live. It affects your emotions. It affects every single part of your life. He says, therefore, in consequences of what I've just told you, comfort one another with these words. Comfort points to any kind of uh, cheering speech, animating and cheering speech. And he says, I, I want you to comfort. And the idea here is this, is this is a command. He doesn't say, I think this is a good idea. Maybe, maybe you could, like, you know, if you think about it, maybe if you have time. He actually says, therefore, comfort. I command you to be, to make this the habit of your life. When it comes to grief, when it comes to death, when it comes to loss, he says, this is what you must do. Don't allow people to walk around with their, with their grief and to fall down and to be left alone. You are commanded to go and to what? Remind them of these things. Give them these words. They were grieving over those who are fallen asleep. And he says, take these words. Notice this too. Paul doesn't say, I want to comfort you. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I'm writing this, you know, and, and that's where it ends. It's not just read this and that's good enough, right? He doesn't just say, hey, read these words, hand them out to everyone, that's good. He actually says, you need to be actively involved in this. I want you to pass it on. He says, one another. Me to you, you to me. All of us need to be comforting one another in these words. The comfort experience lies in the very words which has been written. These very words contain not only the antidote to their sorrow, but proclaim a message of encouragement and hope. There is solid comfort in these words for believers when they stand beside the grave of a loved one. Paul says, have a, have a biblical perspective. Understand what God has promised. Those who have died in Christ are not at a disadvantage. 
we will see them again. They will be gathered up to him and they will experience the joy just like we will. They will be there to have their bodies glorified, to enjoy the personal presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will go through all of the same events that those who are left on here earth when at his coming will go through. There is no loss. They will ever, what, be with the Lord and you will be there with them. So Paul says, this is what we need to do. This is what needs to take place. Let me fill in what is lacking in your face, in your faith. I will give it to you because the Lord Jesus Christ gave it to me. And when you know what's coming and what's going to take place, then you can rejoice. Not saying that there's not pain. Not saying that we somehow stop grieving at all. But we don't grieve as those without hope. Because this is the future, not only for our loved ones, but for us. We will be gathered together with them. And we will see Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. And we thank you again for this truths that are laid out in your word. As we look forward to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can know that those who have gone before us in Christ and and us who are alive when you come will experience a glorious reunion with you. And so we will ever be with you. I pray that we will continually put these words in front of us and that we will comfort ourselves with these words and that we would be quick to turn here in the time of loss. I pray that your Holy Spirit would take these truths and that you would work in our, mind, in our hearts and our minds, that you would renew our minds so that we truly believe this and that this becomes a part of who we are so that at a time of loss, we too, rather than grieving as those who have no hope, that we turn our eyes to our greatest hope to see our Savior from heaven. I pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.